Chapter Twenty of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cleve steadied Joan in her saddle and stood a moment beside her, holding her hands. The darkness seemed clearing before her eyes, and the sick pain within her seemed numbing out. Brace up, hang to your saddle, Jim was saying earnestly. Any moment. Some of the other bandits might come. You lead the way. I'll follow and drive the pack horse. But, Jim, I'll never be able to find the back trail, said Joan. I think you will. You'll remember every yard of the trail on which you are brought in here. You won't realize that till you see. Joan started and did not look back. Cabin Gulch was like a place in a dream. It was a relief when she rode out into the broad valley. The grazing horses lifted their heads to whistle. Joan saw the clumps of bushes and the flowers, the waving grass, but never as she had seen them before. How strange that she knew exactly which way to turn, to head, to cross. She trotted her horse so fast that Jim called to say he could not drive a pack animal and keep to her gait. Every rod of the trail lessened a burden. Behind was something hideous and incomprehensible and terrible. Before beckoned something beginning to seem bright. And it was not the ruddy, calm sunset flooding the hills with color. That something called from beyond the hills. She led straight to a campsite she remembered long before she came to it. And the charred logs of the fire, the rocks, the tree under which she had lain all brought back the emotions she had felt there. She grew afraid of the twilight, and when night settled down, there were phantoms stalking in the shadows. When Cleve, in his hurried camp duties, went out of her sight, she wanted to cry out to him, but had not the voice. And when he was close, still she trembled and was cold. He wrapped blankets round her, and held her in his arms. Yet the numb chill and the dark clamp of mind remained with her. Long she lay awake. The stars were pitiless. When she shut her eyes, the blackness seemed unendurable. She slept to wake out of nightmare, and she dared sleep no more. At last the day came. For Joan that faint trail seemed a broad road, blazoned, through the wild canyons and up the rocky fastness and through the thick breaks. She led on and on and up and down, never at fault, with familiar landmarks near and far. Cleve hung close to her, and now his call to her, or to the pack-horse, took on a keener note. Every rough and wild mile behind them meant so much. They did not halt at the noon hour. They did not halt at the next campsite, still more darkly memorable to Joan. And sunset found them miles farther on, down on the divide, at the head of Lost Canyon. Here Joan ate and drank, and slept the deep sleep of exhaustion. Sunrise found them moving, and through the winding, wild canyon they made fast travel. Both time and miles passed swiftly. At noon, they reached the little open cabin, and they dismounted for a rest 
and a drink at the spring. Joan did not speak a word here. That she could look into the cabin where she had almost killed a bandit and then, through silent, lonely weeks, had nursed him back to life was a proof that the long ride and the distance were helping her, sloughing away the dark deadlock to hope and brightness. They left the place exactly as they had found it, except that Cleve plucked the card from the bark of the balsam tree, Golden's ace of hearts, target with its bullet holes. Then they rode on, out of that canyon, over the rocky ridge, down into another canyon, and on and on, past an old campsite, along a babbling brook for miles, and so at last out into the foothills. Toward noon of the next day, when approaching a clump of low trees in a flat valley, Joan pointed ahead. Jim, it was in there where Roberts and I camped, and... You ride around, I'll catch up with you, replied Cleve. She made a wide detour to come back again to her own trail, so different here. Presently Cleve joined her. His face was pale and sweaty, and he looked sick. They rode on silently, and that night they camped without water on her own trail, made months before. The single tracks were there, sharp and clear in the earth, as if imprinted but a day. Next morning Joan found that as the wild border lay behind her, so did the dark and hateful shadow of gloom. Only the pain remained, and it had softened. She could think now. Jim Cleve cheered up. Perhaps it was her brightening to which she responded. They began to talk, and speech liberated feeling. Miles of that back trail they rode side by side, holding hands, driving the pack horse ahead, and beginning to talk of old associations. Again it was sunset when they rode down the hill towards the little village of Hodley. Joan's heart was full, but Jim was gay. Won't I have it on your old fellows, he teased, but he was grim, too. Jim, you won't tell just yet, she faltered. I'll introduce you as my wife. They'll all think we eloped. No, they'll say I ran after you. Please, Jim, keep it a secret a little. It'll be hard for me. Aunt Jane will never understand. Well, I'll keep it a secret till you want to tell, for two things, he said. What? Meet me tonight under the spruces where we had that quarrel. Meet just like we did then, but differently. Will you? I'll be so glad. And put on your mask now. You know, Joan, sooner or later, your story will be on everybody's tongue. You'll be Dandy Dale as long as you live near this border. Wear the mask just for fun. Imagine your Aunt Jane and everybody. Jim, I'd forgotten how I look, exclaimed Joan in dismay. I didn't bring your long coat. Oh, I can't face them in this suit. You'll have to. Besides, you look great. It's going to tickle me, the sensation you'll make. Don't you see? They'll never recognize you till you take the mask off. Please, Joan. She yielded and donned the black mask, not without a twinge, and thus they rode across the log bridge, over the creek, into the village. The few men and women they met stared in wonder, and recognizing Cleve, they grew excited, 
They followed, and others joined them. Joan, won't it be strange if Uncle Ben's really is the overland of Alder Creek? We've packed out every pound of overland's gold. Oh, I hope, I believe he's your uncle. Wouldn't it be great, Joan? But Joan could not answer. The word gold was a stab. Besides, she saw Aunt Jane and two neighbors standing before a log cabin, beginning to show signs of interest in the approaching procession. Joan fell back a little, trying to screen herself behind Jim. Then Jim halted with a cheery salute. For land's sakes, ejaculated a sweet-faced, gray-haired woman. If it isn't Jim Cleve, cried another. Jim jumped off and hugged the first speaker. She seemed overjoyed to see him and then overcome. Her face began to work. Jim, we always hoped you'd, you'd fetch Joan back. Sure, shouted Jim, who had no heart now for even an instant's deception. There she is. Who? What? Joan slipped out of her saddle and, tearing off the mask, she leaped forward with a little sob. Ante, Ante, it's Joan, alive and well. Oh, so glad to be home. Don't look at my clothes, look at me. Aunt Jane evidently sustained a shock of recognition, joy, amaze, consternation, and shame. All of which were subservient to the joy. She cried over Joan and murmured over her. Then suddenly alive to the curious crowd, she put Joan from her. You, you wild thing, you desperado. I always told Bill you'd run wild some day. March in the house and get out of that indecent rig. That night under the spruces, with the starlight piercing the lacy shadows, Joan waited for Jim Cleve. It was one of the white, silent mountain nights. The brook murmured over the stones, and the wind rustled the branches. The wonder of Joan's homecoming was in learning that Uncle Bill Hodley was indeed overland, the discoverer of Alder Creek. Years and years of profitless toil had at last been rewarded in this rich gold strike. Joan hated to think of gold. She had wanted to leave the gold back in Cabin Gulch, and she would have done so had Jim permitted it, and to think that all that gold which was not Jim Cleve's belonged to her uncle. She could not believe it. Fatal and terrible forever to Joan would be the significance of gold. Did any woman in the world or any man know the meaning of gold as well as she knew it? How strange and enlightening and terrible had been her experience. She had grown now, not to blame any man, honest miner or bloody bandit. She blamed only gold. She doubted its value. She could not see it a blessing. She absolutely knew its driving power to change the souls of men. Could she ever forget that vast anthill of toiling diggers and washers, blind and deaf and dumb to all save gold? Always limbed in figures of fire against the black memory would be the forms of those wild and violent bandits. Golden, the monster, the gorilla, the cannibal. Horrible as was the memory of him, there was no horror in thought of his terrible death. That seemed to be the one memory that did not hurt. But Kells was indestructible. He lived in her mind. 
Safe out of the border now and at home, she could look back clearly. Still, all was not clear and never would be. She saw Kells, the ruthless bandit, the organizer, the planner, and the blood spiller. He ought to have no place in a good woman's memory, yet he had. She never condoned one of his deeds or even his intentions. She knew her intelligence was not broad enough to grasp the vastness of his guilt. She believed he must have been the worst and most terrible character on that wild border. That border had developed him. It had produced the time and place and the man. And therein lay the mystery. For over against this bandit's weakness and evil, she could contrast strength and nobility. She alone had known the real man in all the strange phases of his nature, and the darkness of his crime faded out of her mind. She suffered remorse, almost regret. Yet what could she have done? There had been no help for that impossible situation, as there was now no help for her in a right and just placing of Kells among men. He had stolen her, wantonly murdering for the sake of lonely, fruitless hours with her. He had loved her, and he had changed. He had gambled away her soul and life. And last, and terrible proof of the evil power of gold, and in the end he had saved her. He had gone from her white, radiant cool, with strange, pale eyes, and his amiable, mocking smile, and all the ruthless force of his life had expended itself in one last magnificent stand. If only he had known her at the end, when she lifted his head. But no, there had been only the fading light, the strange weird look of a retreating soul, already alone forever. A rustling of leaves, a step, thrilled Joan out of her meditation. Suddenly she was seized from behind, and Jim Cleve showed that though he might be a joyous and grateful lover, he certainly would never be an actor. For if he desired to live over again that fatal meeting and quarrel which had sent them out to the border, he failed utterly in his part. There was possession in the gentle grasp of his arms and bliss in the trembling of his lips. Jim, you never did it that way, laughed Joan. If you had, do you think I could ever have been furious? Jim, in turn, laughed happily. Joan, that's exactly the way I stole upon you and mauled you. You think so? Well, I happen to remember. Now you sit here and make believe you're Joan. And let me be Jim Cleve. I'll show you. She stole away into the darkness and noiselessly, as a shadow, she stole back to enact that violent scene as if it lived in her memory. Jim was breathless, speechless, choked. That's how you treated me, she said. I don't believe I could have been such a, a bear, panted Jim. But you were, and consider, I've not half your strength. Then all I say is, you did right to drive me off, only you should never have trailed me out to the border. Ah, but Jim, in my fury, I discovered my love. End of chapter 20 End of the Border Legion by Zane Gray Recording by Richard Kilmer, San Antonio, Texas